In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we are going to hear a story about the ones that walked the cancer path before us, shining a light in the darkness. And while sometimes they not only walk the cancer path, they also forge on into death before us as well, their light shines on. Today, we're talking about cancer friends. In early November, I had the pleasure of meeting two women for dinner. Both were diagnosed with breast cancer young. One was from my neck of the woods, though we'd never met face to face before. And the other was from the opposite end of California. As we munched on poke and fried calamari, the marine fog poured in around our patio table and our discussion turned to our firsts, specifically our first friends in the community, the very special breast cancer best friend. Everyone I've met has one. Sometimes they get lucky and find them early, early on, maybe even in the big lazy boys in the chemo lounge or their oncologist or kindly nurse navigator introduced them. Maybe they connected in a Facebook group or found each other through Instagram hashtags. Around the table that night, Kiara shared about finding and connecting with Lauren. Missy told us how she met Jacqueline, and I talked about my person, Becky. I've shared before here on The Burn about how I met Becky, how she followed me out of a writing class that wasn't cancer-specific at all to tell me that my stories resonated with her because she was also in her 30s, navigating a life after diagnosis. You can listen back to that story in the October 6, 2021 episode addressing the special needs of the younger breast cancer patient, if you like. Our breast cancer best friends are the ones that really get us, get what we're going through on a level that's very different from our non-cancer friends. They understand the side effects, the scanxiety, the grief of all that cancer takes. They understand the uncertainty of navigating a life after diagnosis, and they understand that it never goes away. In my case, Becky was diagnosed a year before me, so in many ways she was the light a few steps ahead of me in the tunnel, a guide on my path into survivorship. My guest today has also had guides a few steps ahead of her to follow in the breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer space. She calls these people that walk before her, her Jiminy Crickets. For those of you unfamiliar with this term, Jiminy Cricket is the Walt Disney version of the quote, talking cricket created by Italian writer Carlo Collodi for his 1883 children's book, The Adventures of Pinocchio. Disney adapted that into the animated film Pinocchio in 1940. In the Disney version, the cricket is a comical and wisecracking partner who accompanies Pinocchio on his adventures, serving as Pinocchio's conscience. Keep that in mind as we get into today's story. So my guest today is Stephanie Le Jeunesse. Stephanie comes to us today from Northwestern Washington State. 
She is a queer Jewish ghostwriter, editor, childbirth educator, gardener, beekeeper, and community organizer. She is also a... Okay, Stephanie, you'll correct me on this, but she is also <laughs> very passionate about ballet, which is called Ballet Omin. I think I got it right. Uh-huh, awesome. you got it. Stephanie's one half of the dynamic duo behind the popular podcast, Cancer for Breakfast. She lives with her partner, three children, dog, two cats, mini chickens, and metastatic lobular breast cancer, which arrived when she was 39. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to The Burn. Hey, April, thank you so much for having me. I'm fangirling. You know how much I love Wildfire and The Burn. I'm so excited that you've taken the step into podcasting. I know. It's very exciting. And I am also fangirling. I love everything that you're doing and um, always teaching me new words. So thank you for (laughs) (laughs) tolerating that. It's my lot in life. Right? So today you're reading a piece that you wrote um, called My Jiminy Cricket. You wrote this for Wildfire Magazine's 2021 Grief and Acceptance issue. This was an issue in which we explored not only the various layers of grief that we face in the breast cancer community, but also how and where we find solace. After you read, you and I will talk about what it means to be friends with people who have cancer too, and also using writing as a way to process grief. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Stephanie, I'll let you take it away. Okay, thank you. I saw her from behind and mistook her for an old man, wispy white hair blowing in the late winter wind. Around me assembled what is arguably the most ridiculous of a host of genuinely silly local events, the chicken parade. Chickens on leashes and doozied up bike trailers carrying hens passed me by, lining up at the designated starting corner. The pale head turned to watch. I ducked behind a taller person, breath held, parsing the face I recognized as a friend's with the mismatched rest of her. Chemotherapy had taken her thick, dark bob and replaced it with patches of cotton candy. Once robust, she looked slight, frail. A flannel shirt, a cardigan, a down vest, and a shawl draped over her like an entryway chair. Shocked, I hid from her until it was time to go. Our babies were born four months apart. We shared a midwife and similar schedules, so my visits often followed hers or hers mine. In the throes of pregnancy and the postpartum period, we communicated mainly through our midwife, catching up secondhand, sending along some cookies or soup. I felt tethered to her, our one-woman rowboats rising and falling in tandem in the tides of motherhood. Have you ever, despite logic, a healthy skepticism, a technical disbelief in the supernatural, had an inexplicable feeling that something was faded? I haven't told anyone this, least of all her, but from the moment we met, I felt that tether. You don't just accept a cup of tea across from someone's Formica kitchen table and ask, do you sense it too? I mean, you could, but I wouldn't. While taking my blood pressure the week I was due, our midwife sat opposite me on my couch. We were bathed in gorgeous summer sunlight, but the still air and dry heat were suffocating and the midwife was uncharacteristically quiet. Her pen scratched my systolic, my diastolic numbers into the steno pad she carried, and her eyes met mine. She caught my hand. Have you heard? She asked. In the way that takes for granted, there is only one thing to have heard. It's bad. 
It's really bad, she sighed. It was. It was criminal. We were young. She had a newborn. Nothing worked for whatever reason. When we had the same haircut, people occasionally confused us for each other. When I allowed myself naivety, I looked forward to it happening again, but the last time it did, I wanted to scream, haven't you heard? The quieter part, we're going to die. Our boats were sinking and the tide was out for good. She did, of course, die. I saw her again after the hiding episode and she'd thank me not to describe how much worse it got. She was as ungraceful a dyer as one can be, and I loved this about her. Furious, mean, and justifiably so. Obviously, obviously, obviously. Her baby would not remember her. There would be no more of her art. She was vanishing, and it was absurd and cruel. I wanted to whisper, tell me what it's like. Tell me the secrets from when it happens to me. But that would have been selfish, and I was scared anyway. And if I told her about our intertwined fates, she would have laughed herself to death instead. By the time I cycled through the disbelief and abject denial and allowed grief to catch up with me, I'd miss the window for acceptable sadness. I couldn't yell at anyone to stop the ride because I'd never managed to get on, and the carnival was already in another town. All of this to say that when I felt a thickening in the side of my breast, I knew. When my doctor said I was so young, but we could make sure. When the scheduler took down my date of birth and clarified that it was a diagnostic mammogram I wanted. When the first oncologist insisted it was small, curable, I knew. From the ethereal other side, I don't even believe in she was waving them off as stupid, optimistic, Friends cooed, cancer tells lies that make you distrust your body. It does, but it wasn't. Amid my thorough breakdown, I took bizarre pleasure in vindication when the actual results came in. And in my mind's eye, she sat back, equally appeased. We both love being right, even when it spells disaster. It's probably unethical to employ a dead friend as your cancer Jiminy Cricket. I think about that a lot. Does everybody have one, and who's yours? Is it the first person you lost? The one whose life mirrors your own a little too closely? The one you watched die while counting the ways you were different? She always drank too much. They smoked in college. His family history is so strong, and mine is non-existent. But then, do you think they mind? Am I the only atheist who does this? Am I an atheist if I do this? Is every cancer death I hear about another gum wrapper in my growing foil ball ever heavier as I juggle our collective grief from hand to hand? And how big is your ball? These are the questions I ask myself as I make sandwiches for my child, the same age as hers. But I have three to her one. I have medication that's working where hers never did. A different disease. An average survival time that puts hers to shame. I try to focus on the ways we are not alike now, instead of imagining my own thick, dark hair disappeared, because someday I won't have to imagine. When that happens, and then what comes after, I hope she'll appear so I can ask her to tell me the secrets I was afraid of when we were alive. Mm, thank you so much for that, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. It's gorgeous. 
So we're going to take, yeah, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, you and I will chat more about grief, loss, and cancer, Jiminy Crickets. Hello, my name is Carla Ross, and in 2015, at the age of 34, I was diagnosed with mixed invasive ductal carcinoma and lobular carcinoma, HER2 positive stage 2 breast cancer. I decided that I wasn't going to share my story because that was such a traumatic time in my life and I just wanted to forget about it. But Javasia Harris Bowser of C. Jane Wright posted on her social media that Wildfire Magazine was looking for women to share their story to blaze a trail of hope and encouragement. And so I decided that I would be bold and share my story to encourage someone and appreciate my community because without my community of family, friends, co-workers, church members, I don't believe that I could have gotten through this. So I just want you to know that you're not alone and you too can fight the good fight of breast cancer. And I just want to thank Wildfire Magazine, Monica, April, and Javasia for allowing us to share our story and encourage hope. Thank you. Thank you so much for the love, Carla. All right, welcome back. Stephanie, thank you again for your powerful writing. It's so nice to have you read that story from your from your own perspective, your own intonation. It's it's magic to hear these stories come to life. So thank you again. Thank you for letting me share it. I um I feel a weird responsibility to the friend that this is about, you know, every time I read it or share her story. Um, even though, you know, obviously it is my story too, but you know, those, those fates are intertwined, like I said. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and I love that you, um, you brought, you brought her up, you know, obviously we've been talking about her now, or you've been talking about her for 10 minutes, but the writing as healing tool for you and the writing as healing through eulogy are two things I really want to talk about with you today. So let's let's start first with your own path. Um, I and the reason I want to is because I love the analogy of the Jiminy Cricket. So I want to start <laughs> there with that. So as I was doing some research for our episode here, uh, I was you know getting that history of the Disney. Um, you know they kind of invented the character we think of as Jiminy Cricket today. And one yeah. of the things I was remembering is that in Pinocchio. Jiminy is tasked with leading Pinocchio along his journey to become a real boy, quote unquote, real boy. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gave me goosebumps, I have to say, when I was reading that and thinking about your story. So I want to ask you if there's an aspect of this quest for realness that is coming up for you in your I hate to use the J word, but your so-called cancer journey, you know, with <laughs> yep. these Jiminy Crickets. Yeah. Tell me what you think about that. And is that real aspect? I think that that is such an astute observation on your part. I love that you did that research. And yeah, I mean, not to get too weird about it, but I do look on cancer muggles, you know, as, as we call them, people who have never experienced cancer personally as sort of cute, you know, it's like <laughs> you sweet summer child, just wait. And, um, I do think that there's something enormously valuable in watching somebody die. I think that it gives us a perspective into our own lives into sort of all of humanity that we just don't have an opportunity 
to get anywhere else. I mean, it's, um, it's an honor to be invited into somebody's last days, hours, um, because obviously it can be a very embarrassing, you know, vulnerable situation. Um, my friend was really, like I say in the story, really, really upset that she was dying and she wasn't graceful about it at all. And, um, I think there's so much power in that and power in witnessing that as a possibility because, um, you know, everybody dies. And, um, I think that the journey, I guess, quote unquote of life is, is getting to that point where you feel like you can be done on earth. And, um, I don't, you know, I don't believe in an afterlife or anything like that. Um, it often seems very attractive (laughs) when I hear other people talk about it, but, you know, I love that idea of, um, of having somebody sort of give you this gift on their way out the door and, um, being able to use that for the rest of your own journey through life. Um, I do feel like I have a different perspective than people who haven't faced their own mortality. Um, and it sucks cause I'd like to not have stage four <laughs> cancer, but, um, it's also, it's a weird privilege to have that perspective. I think so too. And I wonder if like me, part of your feelings about that has to do with doing birth work as well. I, in my pre-cancer life was a doula, you know, someone Mm -hmm. who offers emotional and physical support to someone in labor. And it did give me an interesting perspective on life and death and, you know, the coming in and the going out and how society is so afraid of both of them. And so 100%, right. We don't see it much. We don't. And there's just something to be said for a situation in which everything else falls away. And, um, and it all just hinges on this, this one moment and you can't control it. You can't control what your body's doing. You just are along for the ride. And, um, I think, you know, birth doing birth work is a really, um, a really great privilege also because people do, they let you into their lives at this very, very vulnerable place. And, um, you know, thank goodness for modern medicine, but it's, it's still precarious, um, every single time. And I think that people who see that for, for what it is are, are lucky. And, um, it does, it gives us, a an outlook that's different. It does. It's interesting, I think, from a few different perspectives, one being that we don't have enough rites of passage or acknowledge enough rites of passage, I think. Um, But the other part is in that being vulnerable to someone else, you know, when you're that raw and Mm -hmm. you took this experience with your friend and then used it to honor her in this story. And I think you were asking some questions about your own journey and and the mirroring of those two, but then writing about her and offering this eulogy brings you some closure around your grief. Is there anything that you want to say about, about that process for you? It's hard because I do, I, I think that I am lacking a lot of closure around it. And in a lot of ways, even though, as I said, I'm not like a supernatural kind of person necessarily, but I do bring her along with me. And unfortunately I've collected a few more 
people like this whose um, experiences are different, as they will be, you know, for, for everybody facing death and going through um, a death from cancer. But I... I like that aspect of it. I like that there isn't really closure because I continue to learn things from them as they come up because, you know, as, as deep in it, as, as you can be with somebody while they're dying, um, you still aren't ready to absorb everything that you witness, everything that you go through. And so I'm still moving through some of those lessons. And as you know, I go further along in this process with metastatic cancer, I do think that that's a weird way of keeping them alive in, in my heart. (laughs) Yes, Um, absolutely. And it's, you know, it is, I think it's been a good lesson for me as an atheist because, um, it is a way of like life after death. It's a way to see that um, that finality isn't as black and white as I may have imagined it was. Um, that I can sometimes, if I need to, because I'm really, really sad, think of them as just my friend who <laughs> who is someplace else, mm-hmm. um, and and is still giving me cool things to think about. Right. Well, serving as your guide, you know, on this um, path. Yeah. I'm a little obsessed right now with this idea of being the main characters of our own stories, but in order to be the hero of your story, you need a guide, right? You need the the sidekick and the, and the other um, people who kind of pop in and teach you those lessons and kind of show you the way. So I love that you're identifying that in, in these people around you. I think too, this is one of the aspects that that some people really um, either don't understand because they're not necessarily in the cancer community or they're in it, but it it is difficult for them, which is that when you're here, there's a lot of death. We are surrounded by people yeah. passing away a lot. And um And some of those people we've never actually met beyond the screen, like you and I are talking now, or, you know, beyond seeing someone's pictures and still we feel very drawn to them. We follow their, their, their experience along with them. Um, I hate, I just hate this idea that they're like just a Facebook friend or whatever, because I think that when you're in the community, you're in the community, we're all part of it. And I guess one of my questions for you or what I'm driving at is how do you handle the loss? Like, how do you stay in it, even though there is so much loss when you're a part of it? Um, it's really funny that you mentioned that just a Facebook friend thing, because as an older millennial or like Zennial or whatever we are, I was born in 1980. And um, so, you know, I had a ton of AOL friends or whatever, you know, like internet friends have been a part of my life since I was 15. And, um, you know, some of those relationships are still my oldest friendships. And, um, you know, I've watched them get married and have kids and start businesses and stuff. And, um, so I don't personally see those relationships as anything less than somebody you met, you know, at a college class that you were both taking or whatever. And, um, it really does bum me out when I hear people denigrate those 
those internet friendships because um for a lot of people that's just like the easiest way it's it's really hard to meet people as an adult um and also we share all of these very very personal things um and i find that we share them quickly because you don't have to go through all of the small talk, you know, you can just be like, cures for diarrhea, what you got, you know, <laughs> like, um, it's a language that we, we have in common as cancer people. And, um, so that that's one, one piece of it. I, I do want to honor those relationships as valid and rad and, um, important and foundational. But, um, like you said, we are surrounded by death and, um, it, it does get really, really hard. And I think I have had to take a more active approach to monitoring the way that I interact with social media, um, and encourage my cancer friends to do the same. Cause sometimes you're just like doom scrolling and looking at people's photos and they're looking sicker and sicker. And you're like, what did I miss? You know? And, um, it just, it gets really hard and also hard not to apply it to yourself. Um, and so I have to keep telling myself, you know, their story is not my story. It's their story. And, and then also the other piece of that is to be there for them and their story because it sucks to be the sicker one and, um, have everybody peace out because (laughs) you're too hard to look at. So, um, I, I think that, you know, having good, healthy boundaries around what you're capable of, but also really trying to show up and be present when you're able to, um, is, is how I cope. And, um, it seems to be working so far. I think (laughs) my antidepressants are also working. (laughs) Yes. Yes. To all of that. I love that. Yeah. I just think, um, I think finding balance because we, we, are very connected to one another and we're very connected to the ups and downs and the losses in the community and also very connected to what we re- we get back, you know, and like you said, you know, the quick answers in the middle of the night when you need a solution or when you need support, like you can't, you can't leave the loss without leaving also everything that's, that's rich about it and gained from being in there and witnessing the loss is important too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And, um, it's not, I mean, it's not even a totally selfless thing. Like you get information from people. Um, I have a friend right now whose husband is going through his, his final days and, um, there's some new information to me about, you know, uh, getting your affairs in order that she's been generous enough to share. And, um, you know, like life goes on and you get to, (laughs) you get to process and everything, but there's also, you know, there's an amount of, uh, of businessy stuff that your partners are going to have to go through. And, um, I don't know, it's, it's, like I said before, I think it's, it's, is a unique privilege to get to be around somebody in their last days. Absolutely. And also to your last point there, it is, um, 
it's a way of demystifying something that is largely unknown by, by a lot of people. And sometimes pulling back that curtain can actually take some of the fear out of it and help you to identify those logistical points, you know, and, and totally. control what you can control, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's wild that as a, as, as a culture, we are so closed off around death, um, even though it is ubiquitous, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> there's, Everyone's there's no going to go there. Yep. Yep. Well, Stephanie, and before we run out of time here, would love to have you share a little bit about cancer for breakfast with us. Like me, you've chosen to make cancer land, your passion, your hobby, your everything. So tell us a yeah. little bit about cancer for breakfast. Oh, well, it's been so fun. We have 30 episodes and, um, I started it with my cancer bestie. She was, a um, a person that our mutual best friend uh, connected me with right when I was first getting diagnosed. And she had early stage breast cancer. She's now been done with treatment for a year. I, of course, have metastatic breast cancer, but we really do try to tackle kind of the whole gamut of, of cancer things. You know, it's not a breast cancer specific podcast, but we try to do it with some warmth and some humor and um, you know, really, we just are super lucky to be able to chat for an hour or so every week. And um, we've made a really cool community around it. It's just been a blast. So um, I'm stoked. I hope that we can keep doing it and um, that people keep finding us because that's really the joy for me is connecting with folks who are especially just starting out on their journey and really needing a friend. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you and Amy are doing that. So tell us where people can find you online, whether it's Cancer for Breakfast or elsewhere. Yeah, um, we are. Our website is cancerforbreakfast.com. Um, we are on Instagram at Cancer for Breakfast. We're on Twitter at Cancer Breakfast. So thanks, <laughs> character limitations. Um, and, we, you know, we're on all of the major uh, podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple, and um yeah, we're always excited to connect. We've also got a Facebook group for our listeners. So um, people can listen to the podcast and check that out if they want. Excellent. I love that. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. Thanks, April. It's been so fun to hang out. Absolutely. So my guest today was Stephanie Lejeunesse. Her piece was called My Cancer Jiminy Cricket from the April-May 2021 issue of Wildfire Magazine called Grief and Acceptance. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay till the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's conversation with Stephanie. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our more than 30 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. Don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. Also, leave us a starred review to help others find the stories they need to hear. All right, here's today's writing prompt. Set your timer for eight minutes 
and I want you to write about grief. We are writing today about the friends we've lost. So the prompt itself is what I miss most about you is. Set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. What I miss most about you is. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.